0: Thanks, Sal, and uh, well done for getting here today. I feel like it's a bit of a gumboot day, but you brave the weather, and we're here together. And we can hear the rain falling. It's kind of nice, soothing. And we're in the book of 1 Peter, which, is, which I hope you're enjoying this book. It's a, it's a letter that's written to equip Christians to live well in a world that's hostile toward them. Can you see why it's going to be a helpful letter for us to be in at the moment? But we are living in a society that I would say is becoming increasingly hostile in a number of different ways towards Christians. And if that's the case, then it's letters like 1 Peter that we're going to need to camp out in and keep coming back to, to know how we're meant to be living in a hostile world. Um, The passage that we're actually in tonight is extremely practical. There's a whole bunch of really practical instructions for Christians about how to live, which is, which is wonderful. We do, we do get that in the Scriptures and we're going to enjoy the really practical instructions from our God about how to live tonight. But, but just before we dive into that, I, I want to give a bit of a caution and that is this. Whenever we're in passages like this that are really instructional, here's how to live as a Christian and all these different ways, there's a danger. And do you know what the danger is? It's a danger for someone who's new to Christianity and trying to figure it out. And it's also a danger for those who have been Christians for a long time and you've begun the race by grace, not works. But over time, you've learned how to live as a Christian and you think you go, like we think we get it figured out and we read these instructions and we can find ourselves going, yep, I've got it. I'm nailing it. We can drift towards thinking what? Thinking that we're acceptable to God because of how we're living. You yeah? know? We, we, we find ourselves in right relationship with God because of we've got the Christian life nailed. And, and I want to give you a warning right up front, particularly those of you who are new to this, you're new to Christianity, you're trying to figure out what it's all about, chances are you come here with an assumption and the assumption's something like this. To become a Christian means figuring out how to live the Christian life then you fit in with other Christians and with God. Chances are that's the assumption you've come with. And the last thing I'd want you to do is to hear the instructions that are given here in the Scriptures today and go away thinking, all right, I've just got to do all those things, tick them all off, and then one day I can finally call myself a Christian. That is not biblical Christianity. That's not how you become a Christian. It's not what makes a person a Christian, figuring out how to live the life. What makes a person a Christian is actually further on down in this passage, and I kind of want to start there before we get to the instructions. So look at verse 18 with me. Have a look. Here's what makes a person a Christian. It's this this thing. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So what is it that brings a person to God? What is it that makes a person a Christian? Well, it's this thing that Christ did. It's not something you do. It's this thing where Christ suffers for the unrighteous. You you get the perfectly righteous Son of God taking on himself On the cross, your sin, my sin, it's placed upon him. The sin of the unrighteous, that's us by the way, gets placed upon the righteous and Jesus dies with it, deals with it, rises again from the dead, showing victory over it. And that is what brings you to God. It's to put your trust and put your belief in that act, in that performance, not your own. Now, this is the kind of thing you can understand at one point, but then forget down the track. Because we kind of drift towards thinking everything is performance-based because it's how our world works. And so it's easy to drift towards thinking, well, my relationship with God is performance-based. He does want you to live for Him, but that's not how you become a Christian. A Christian is someone who puts a trust in this event, this act, this work, not your own, not your ability to pull off the Christian life. And I really want to begin there so we remember, because then you can dive into instructions helpfully. You you can kind of understand, okay, my security, the basis on which I feel like I'm, I'm good with God is actually Christ's work and from that place of security and that place of confidence, you can say, okay, what is this life now that I've got to live? And it's, and it's a wonderful life to press into. It's an awesome life of attempting to honour God by the Spirit of God, but it, we've got to keep remembering where it begins and the basis of the relationship. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, yeah, I still don't get it, Tim. <laughs> keep coming back. You've got to get this. The only way to be right with God, the only way to be brought to God... Is by trusting in what God has done for you, not what you do for yourself. Yeah? And this is something I need to remember every week, every day. And it's actually the kind of thing you need to keep preaching to yourself as you get better at living as a Christian. Because it's easy to sneak towards thinking, yeah, I'm nailing this in some ways. That must be why I'm now acceptable to God. We can just drift subtly in that direction. So there you go, camp out there. And, and if you're new to this and you're thinking, yeah, i still got to get the Christianity thing, I've got to get the Jesus bit, feel free to ignore everything else I say tonight and just spend time staring at verse 18 and saying, God, can you help me get that? That you have my permission to just ignore what I'm saying now, all right? got to get Jesus and what He's done for you first. And then there's a whole new life to live. And even if you think, yeah, I think I got Jesus a long time ago, have you really got Him? is the basis of your confidence that you're good with God entirely on His performance for you. From that place of security, we can dig into all kinds of instructions It's are really helpful. A radical kind of life to live, a God-honouring kind of life to live, a life that we live in order to put on display His goodness towards us. So let's do that now. Let's dig into that life. And there's kind of two sections. Well, there's Two instructions given for how we're to live towards each other and instructions of how you're meant to live towards someone who's being hostile towards you because you're a Christian. So those two broad areas. Christians can be hostile to each other as well, but I think they're the basis of the instruction. So let's just dive straight in now and have a look. Verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. You get five things there. Um, It's a chiasm, which is some fancy way of writing in the ancient world, where the middle thing's the most important thing. What's the middle thing? Love one another. I think that's likely what's happening here. The the other four are hanging off that middle thing. Here's the thing for us as Christians, how do we relate to each other? What's, what's, What's core and important for us in dealing with each other, particularly in times where there's hostility towards us? Don't turn on each other. Love one another. And focus on loving one another deeply from the heart. It's at the core of what needs to be thriving and growing in our relationships. We look at each other and we decide, I'm going to love this person. We're going to love each other. And I think the other four kind of hang off that in some way. Be like-minded. That's not an easy thing if you're a a mature adult, because mature adults um, are independent thinkers, That's the idea of being an adult. So how do you get a group of adults to be like-minded? You can either try and wrestle them into being like-minded or you say to them, hey, it's God's intention for us to grow in like-mindedness, you know? And so let's work on that one together. That's not an easy thing. It doesn't mean you put aside all differences. It means we do continue to think independently, but we attempt to bring our thoughts to each other respectfully. It's a bit of an art that's lost these days, the art of being an adult who can disagree with another adult um, but respectfully disagree and enter into conversation with that other adult, um, assuming that there might be something you've missed, that you need to hear from them. Can we be adults who actually, our love for each other is expressed in our desire to actually hear each other out, and, um, but, but for the purpose of working towards a like-mindedness, a common mind, a common mind about what we believe, a common mind, I think it's helpful, about what we're ch- the, the way we're trying to run church and a common mind, because about how we're trying to live as Christians, if we can be on the same page with those types of things, that will help us walk this life together. It will actually help us be effective as a community together. It doesn't mean we're not allowed to have some differences, but to work together to have a common mind is actually going to help us be effective at loving and sharing the gospel and holding it out in a helpful way. I actually think one of the reasons why it's helpful that there are different Christian denominations where there's different theology and different practice is to enable Christians to come together in a level of like-mindedness and just get on with the job together. Wonderfully, different from other churches, but wonderfully together and heading in the same direction and effective at holding out this beautiful gospel to a world that desperately needs it. So we continue to be independent thinking adults, but we work on a like-mindedness. Yep. For the, for the sake of being effective for God. Like-minded. Sympathetic. There's, these are not all necessary things you do. This is, like a, this is like a feeling in your heart or an attitude of the mind. Sympathetic towards others. Do you feel sympathy towards those who are in pain around you? Now, some of you are really high on the spectrum of empathy and you can spot someone a mile away by their body language and their facial expressions and you're just feeling for them before you even know the story and you're awesome at that. In fact, you might be too good at it that you just live under the burden of how everyone feels all the time and you need a little bit of differentiation going on or something. But maybe you're down the other end of the spectrum and you don't easily feel what other people are feeling You don't actually even really notice when you hurt other people's feelings by just being who you are. And if that's the case, then for you, a growth point would be to work at developing sympathy towards others who are in pain around you. And if we can be attempting to look upon each other and have sympathy for each other and do what we can to step towards the pain you see in someone else, not easy. I don't feel like I'm great at it at all. But we're to work towards being growing in our sympathy. Grow your heart for someone else's life, how they're doing, how they're feeling. And, 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 the, and the, the next command, I think, will kind of come out of that. If you are feeling sympathetic towards someone, then there's a chance that you'll be able to be compassionate towards them, which I think is more of an action. You'll be able to respond with a tender heart towards them and be kind towards them and generous towards them. And I actually think there's lots of evidence, developing evidence of that among us as a new little community where someone is is in pain or there's a level of need and and people are doing what they can to step towards it. It's, It's beautiful. Keep going. Grow in your sympathy and your compassion for each other and to step towards the pain of another with a tender heart. So there you go. There's a couple of instructions that kind of hang off that. How are you going? Is is that you? Do you reckon that's just you to a T? Is that how people would describe you? Is that how you think you are? That's a pretty pleasant person to be around, isn't it? You you want friends like that. Yep. I want a family like that. Who's like this? I'm not. That's an exceptional person. That might even be a list of things that you look at and go, oh, I'm nothing like that. I can't be like that. And you might feel it's not possible at all for you to grow to become like that. And on one level, it's not. Unless, of course, the God who is exactly like that comes to live in you by his Spirit, and then there's hope. You see, what Peter's been talking to the Christians here, and one of the big things he's helping them understand is that they've been given new birth which means God is the one who through faith in Jesus comes to live in a person by his spirit. And if he's the one who's perfectly compassionate and perfectly loving and perfectly sympathetic and he's in you, then there's hope for you and me, that we can grow to become more and more like the God who is in us. His character can come out in us and we can grow in this direction. It's beautiful. Now, there's more, of course. It's not just trying to figure out how to love and be kind to those who are trying to love and be kind back towards you. It gets gets a little bit more extreme here, the life we're called to. Read on with me. Look at verse 9. It says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called... It's a bit harder, isn't it? It's one thing to attempt to love the people who are attempting to love you. You'd have to say it's a bit easier than to try to love a person who's actually deliberately hating on you and hostile towards you and accusing you and trying to hurt you. They're the ones that are hard to, hard to love, are they not? But friends, real love turns up in that very situation. I'd say that is, that, that is the very heart of love to be able to bless a person who's cursing you and coming at you, yep, instead of reacting and retaliating and paying back evil, because evil's been done towards you, yep. Now we do this because we're trying to copy Jesus and that's what he did, yeah, in last week's passage, I mean, look back there at verse 20, or chapter 2, verse 19, um... It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit... Oh, no, hang on, where am I? Now, verse 23, yeah, look at verse 23. When they hurled insults at him, this is Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So do you know the deal with Jesus hanging on the cross? Insults being hurled at him? suffering unjustly, talk about hostility coming at Him, talk about evil coming at Him, how does He react, how does He respond? Well, He doesn't pay back with evil. I mean, the only thing He actually says towards them when He's hanging on the cross is this one. Have you got that Matthew passage for me here? Luke. Have you got the Luke one? You, Sarah, you're onto it. That's the Matthew one. I'm looking for the Luke one. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Here's his attitude towards those who are hating on him. He's, he's thinking the best for them. Lord, would you forgive them for what they're doing? That's huge to respond in that way. It's so hard not to want to try and defend yourself and to be completely honest... When someone's coming at me with hostility and it happens in small ways every week, sometimes in my own home, sometimes in the street, sometimes when I'm doing something wrong and I'm parking on someone's grass or someone's not happy with what I'm doing and they come at me and they're at me, my first reaction, I'm ashamed to say, is usually to puff my chest and actually defend myself and push back. Like that's the kind of guy I am, that's how wretched I am. I'm usually thinking that way first. I'm not thinking humbly, I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about protecting myself. So what would it take for someone like me <laughs> to learn how to not repay evil with evil and to actually grow and actually repay evil with blessing? I think, I've been thinking about it all week. I think what it takes for a person like me and maybe you're something like me is instead of just being obsessed with, obsessed with me and thinking about myself and thinking first and foremost about protecting myself, Maybe I need to grow to be someone who's actually just more concerned for this other person that's coming at me. And, and I'm thinking about them and what's good for them and I'm thinking about God in all this and how this person would be helped in coming to God. And, and I tell you what, if that was my, the focus of my mind, I, that would help me, I think, learn to react and respond differently and perhaps be able to respond with blessing. Yeah? Maybe you're a bit like me. And to be able to do that, to be able to, able to come across a person who's hostile towards you and instead of just reacting, take a breath, consider them, the kind of day they might have just had, the kind of life they might have had and think, what could I do to help this person instead of just thinking about yourself? To, to bless a person isn't just to say, oh, bless your brother in the middle of a hostile situation, but I think it is to kind of just pause for a minute and actually just respond humbly, Yeah. And and to learn how to do that is actually a very effective and powerful way to live. You know, Proverbs 25 puts it like this, says when you do that, in doing this, it's like heaping burning coals on a person's head. Now, I take it that doesn't mean that when you're nice to someone who's rude to you, it actually hurts them, like burning coals on your head. I don't think it's that. So don't do it for vengeance. I think the concept is if someone puts hot coals on your head, hard to ignore it. (laughs) You kind of notice it's happening. And and if you respond to someone who's being hostile towards you with love and kindness and blessing, they cannot ignore that. It's actually very powerful. And it's to follow in the steps of Jesus, to live this way towards someone who's being hostile towards you, rather than using their actions to justify how you're feeling and what you did. How many times do you do that? Someone pulls you up or you're just trying to explain what you've just said or how you've just lost it or done this thing and and you justify it by saying, yeah, but do you know what they did to me? Yeah. Like, but why do we think that that's the ultimate justification for being evil back? We're being called to a new way, a radical way, our saviour's way, where we grow like him and are able to love those hostile towards us rather than getting trapped in the same evil and hostility that they're in. We, we step and we try to love them and help them. Now, I reckon that's a hard piece of instruction to be giving, you know, to be told that we're to be loving one another, humble towards each other, compassionate, sympathetic. And, and when someone's coming at us with evil to not repay evil, I just think that's a really hard way to live But remember, your hope for being able to live this way is a God who's exactly like that. That's our hope. Now, on top of that hope that's actually going to empower you to live like that on any level, I want to give you three motivations that this passage gives us for pressing into a life like that and attempting to grow in that direction. Here's the motivations we're given. Number one, you were called to this life. Number two, you'll be blessed if you live that way. Number three it's very powerful to draw people to God that way. So it'll draw people to God, those three things, yeah? And I'm hoping these things will actually motivate you to actually be determined to grow and head in the direction of this life we're called to. So first of all, you were called to this life. Did you pick up on that language there? Have a look at your Bible, verse 9. It says, "'Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. "'On the contrary, repay evil with blessing.'" Because to this you were called. Do you want to know your calling? (laughs) Christians love the concept of a call, a good calling. We're usually looking for something unique and fancy and lovely. And here's your calling. To live like this. Now you might say, oh, it's just there, Tim. No, no, it's elsewhere as well. Look at the calling back in chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example this is actually part of being a christian you've been called to this life when 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 you put your faith in jesus and god actually brought you to himself you've been brought into and called into this life it's not just this optional thing give it a go if you can no this is your new life This is what you've been saved for. So head in this direction and know that as you attempt to bear up in suffering, unjust suffering, and you attempt to bless those who curse you and it's a scary way to live, just know there's a wonderful purpose in enduring this type of suffering and refusing to pay back evil with evil, but bless those who are evil towards you. And the wonderful purpose in all of it is, um, I mean, Jesus' purpose in Living this way is actually to be a blessing towards us. Like, have a, have a look at, I want to come back to verse 18 again, which is where we begin. Hang on, is it 18? Yeah, it is. I just turned my page. Um, no, I'll turn back. No, yes, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The, the purpose in Jesus living this way was to actually be good for us, those who were enemies towards him when he came and loved us. There's wonderful purpose in living this way. Um, I, look, I, I do want to mention this, the trickiest verse in this passage. If you're in it this week, reading it on your own or in a group, did you come across these verses here? Like you read on, it says, it's, it's better, look, look at verse 17, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive by the Spirit. Skip to Verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God um, with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. It's easy to skip over verses 19 to 21, isn't it? Don't you reckon? It's partly a little bit of an aside that he has there, but I I need to say something about it because it's one of the weirdest passages in Scripture. You can't just skip it. So let me attempt to say something as the rain gets heavier. If you've been in this passage, you've probably swum around in the complexity of it. Yeah? Yeah? See if I can say something here that's of value. I think it's one of the most crazy, confusing passages in the Bible. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me just read it to you. It says that Jesus, after being made alive in the spirit, um, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water and this water symbolises baptism that now saves you. Just sounds interesting, doesn't it? After Jesus rose from the den, he went and preached to these imprisoned spirits and something about they're the ones that disobedient during the times of Noah. And then he talks about water and baptism and how baptism saves you. All right, I'll say a few quick things. This is one of those passages where there's not just one or two different ways that you might try and understand it. There's about five or six. And I've, as I've spent time, and maybe you have as well, looking into those five different views... I lean towards this one and I'll say it humbly. I lean towards this view simply because I think it fits best with Peter's argument, but I'm not going to die on this hill. All right? I'd say it's this The resurrected Jesus went and proclaimed, meaning he preached, to these fallen angels. And these are likely the fallen angels that are described in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, which is another weird verse. But I think it's likely those angels that have fallen and, and, have, and have been put in a place of judgment, not final judgment, but, but waiting the final judgment. And Jesus, in his resurrected state, goes and preaches to them. But he doesn't preach the gospel to try to save them. It's preaching in the sense of proclamation, I think. He proclaims to them his own lordship, which is made visible by his own resurrection so preaching his, preaching his own lordship to these fallen angels really, I think, is proclaiming judgment upon them and, and speaking to them about the final judgment that is to come. I think likely that's where I would lean. And I think the reason why Peter's bringing it up here in his letter to these people in the first century is because the mention of Noah really is a small group of faithful people surrounded by hostile people, and he's speaking to them about, hang in there, stand firm for me. My judgment's going to come on everyone who's hostile towards my people. And I think likely that's the connection between Noah's time and the time in the first century that Peter's describing. Trust in God's judgment. There you go. That, that's, that's where I lean. That's the one in six that I lean. Interesting to hear your thoughts on that. But don't miss the big idea of what's being said here. The big idea is this. When you come to Christ, you are called into a life of this unjust suffering. And we're called to bear up under it. And do you want to know what your calling is? It's your, the call is to endure it patiently and bless the ones who are insulting you. That's massive. It's huge. But it's precisely how our God lives towards us, the ones who have insulted him with our sin. So trust that he's able to help you live that way. So there's the first motivation. You were called to this life. Second motivation, and um, I'll look at the time. I'll maybe move a little bit quicker. Second motivation is that this life will mean you'll inherit a blessing. You see what it says there in verse 9? Verse On the contrary, repay evil, with, uh, re- repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing." Um, I'm going to need to be really brief on this. Even though it mentions the word inherit there, I think it's actually talking about blessing in this life, Um, different from the inheritance that's mentioned in chapter 1. And I think it's talking about an inheritance, a blessing that will come for those who live faithfully towards God in this way. And it's a blessing that's primarily spiritual blessing in this life, psychological, interpersonal, in line with the rest of what the New Testament would say about the blessings for those who are in Christ. Ephesians 1, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You want to be careful not to interpret this as physical and material blessings, that you think, it, I'm going to follow this guy named Jesus and all these physical material blessings are going to come my way. It just makes no sense to interpret things that way. Who was Jesus during his ministry years? He was a, he was a guy who walked poor, and um, camped out for three years and didn't have a house for three years. I think it's a crazy thing that you think you can follow in Jesus' footsteps and what that's going to bring you um, is is material, financial blessing. He was a homeless guy that we follow. The the blessing that we're told here is that to live for Jesus and follow in his example will mean inexpressible and glorious joy, like it's described in chapter 1. Spiritual blessings of knowing our salvation in Jesus. So live this way, it works and it's wonderful and it's powerful and we're following our Saviour. Final piece of motivation, live this way because it helps bring people to God, verses 13 through to 16. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good, but even if you should suffer, for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. I'll just pause there for a little bit. Peter is addressing the Christians in the first century and speaking to them about their fear. It would appear that Christians, when they're instructed to actually bless those who curse them, Um, instead of repaying with evil, and actually live humbly and submit to authorities that are actually overlords over them. It would appear that those instructions given to the Christians in the first century caused them to feel a little bit nervous and a little bit worried and a little bit scared to live this way. It appears as though Christians have always been a little bit scared to follow Jesus and live the way he lived. And so Peter, in a sense, is addressing them and acknowledging their fear, which is really helpful It's actually good to open up the Scriptures and have our fears acknowledged because it's it's scary to follow Jesus and live a radical life. It's frightening on some levels to actually just not live purely for your own self-protection but to actually attempt to bless others and seek their good instead of just your own. It's scary to live that way in this world. And so here's Peter speaking to them about their fear. And do you notice he quotes Isaiah chapter 8? That's that little verse that he's got there where he says, where am I looking? Oh, it's up there. There you go. He says, do not fear what they fear. Yep. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Peter's quoting this passage from Isaiah 8. Don't call conspiracy everything people call conspiracy. This is the next section he's quoting. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. So how do you not fear people and what they can do to you? Well, here's what the prophet Isaiah said. Instead, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. We're always going to fear people. You're never going to get rid of your fear or at least your concern about what people think of you and what they might do to you. You'll never get rid of that. The solution is to never fear. The the solution is not to never fear people. The solution is to fear someone else more to revere and care about someone else more. That's that's what we're being directed to. I'm sorry, am I starting to yell over the top of this rain? I think I am. And you can see the Isaiah says here, it's the Lord God you are to fear in a healthy way. Revere him. Notice what Peter says though. Peter just quotes that first bit of Isaiah and then he goes on to say this, look down. Verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. See what he's doing? He's saying Jesus is God. He is the Christ. You want to be released from being captive about fear of what people think of you and what they might do to you? Fear Jesus. I mean, he says here, revere Jesus, to live with honour and respect towards Jesus. That's the healthy fear you are to have Jesus. That's the answer to, instead of being gripped by fear, is to revere Christ because he's the one who is the Lord. Um, Matthew chapter 10, that's that Matthew verse. We'll put that up there. Here's the reason why we are to fear Jesus. He says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus, by His Spirit, can be your best friend, you know. He's wonderful. He's lovely. He's compassionate. And He's the judge. He's the Lord. And we're told to revere Christ as Lord. If you're going to fear anyone in your life, if you're going to be first and foremost concerned about what someone thinks of you, be concerned about what Jesus thinks of you. Live with a healthy, reverent fear towards Him And watch how that will shape your life. Watch how that will release you from being caught up in simply being focused on fearing people and being concerned what they think of you. Watch what it's like to be released from that and being first and foremost concerned about our wonderful Saviour, what He thinks of us, and the fact that we will stand before Him on our final day. And if you live like that, Look what it goes on to say. If you live with concern for Jesus as Lord and if you live concerned and focused on Him and you live with your hope placed in Him, people are going to notice the kind of life that you're living. It's going to be alien to them. And look what it goes on to say, verse 15. I'll finish on this. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do it with gentleness and respect this life of revering Jesus and having your hope in him and being first and foremost concerned about what he thinks of your life is the very life that's likely going to cause people to come to you and say I've got a question can you tell me about this hope that you have you seem to be focused on something that I'm not. You don't seem to be as obsessed with all the same things I'm obsessed with. You don't, it's getting late. You don't seem to be. I'm, oh, thank you, Lord. You rain down on us, help us understand it. Oh. He's good, isn't he? Yeah. Let's just let him preach for a little bit. I reckon we'll leave it there, eh? (laughs) Let me pray and then we'll sing. And we'll sing with the Lord here. eh? Father God, we thank you for your word. You're drowning us out and you can drown us out. It's you that we come to. It's you we want to hear. It's you we want to praise. Amen, Lord.